From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. In this episode of Kennan X, we talk with the writer and creator of HBO's series Chernobyl, Craig Mazin, with renowned historian Serhi Plohi, and with journalists Maxim Trudelubov and Masha Gessen, examining the fateful events that occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant April 26, 1986. It was the night of April 26, 1986. The personnel at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine were preparing to shut down reactor number four for a routine turbine test. It was supposed to be over in two hours, but something went massively wrong. The reactor exploded, spewing radiation equal to 500 Hiroshima bombs. The official death toll was about 30 to 60 people, but other estimates put it at several thousand. Like the word Hiroshima, Chernobyl entered our language, the terrifying symbol of nuclear devastation and the lies that tried to cover it up. I remember those first news reports in 1986. Several years later, I visited Chernobyl, walking with a CNN news crew along the streets of the ghost town of Pripyat, radiation monitors beeping madly whenever we strayed too close to the grass. Now, more than 33 years later, there's new interest in Chernobyl, thanks to the television miniseries written and directed by Craig Mazin. In late June 2019, he spoke at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and he explained how he got interested in the subject. In 2014, he says, he read an article in the New York Times about a new dome constructed over the now-dead reactor to prevent any release of radioactive material. And it occurred to me, suddenly, on that day, that I didn't know why it exploded. So I just started reading. And as I read, I had this sense that I had uncovered this history of a secret war I didn't even know about. Part of his research entailed visiting the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. It's enormous. It's enormous. And you know what I never realized until I set foot in it? So there are these moments in Chernobyl where I would read and I would think, how could they be in denial like this? How could they be denying it? It blew up. People are telling you it blew up. But when you're walking through it and you feel the size of it, there is the sense that it's too big to fail. It was religious. I'm not a religious person, but that felt religious. For once in my life, I felt religious because it did feel like it was sacred ground. And I was walking around with ghosts of people that I knew in my mind. I knew their names. I could see where they stood. It was the stories of those people that Craig Mason wanted to tell. I wanted a Western audience to see the heroism of Soviet citizenry. We never see it. We see plenty of critique of Soviet leadership, and it's warranted. And we certainly didn't hold back on that front either. But we never get to see a story that is about Soviet citizenry from their perspective, what their lives were like, and the truth of their lives. And not the usual just everyone standing in a line waiting for toilet paper. That's. You know, that's kind of the joke of of what we thought the Soviet Union was. These were incredible people who had inherited a century's worth of, of disaster. 
and misery, and we're still willing to do what needed to be done to save each other. It's remarkable. The show has been highly praised for its realistic depiction of Soviet life in 1986, and Mason says accuracy was crucial to show respect to the Soviet people. But he says there's a lesson for Western audiences, too. I'm hoping that for at least a sliver of the audience, there is a lesson taken from Chernobyl that sooner or later the truth gets you. And it is hard sometimes to accept it, particularly when the truth violates what you want it to be or what you've believed prior. There is a shame in changing our minds. I wish we could get rid of that. I think there should be more shame in not changing our minds. I didn't see the explosion itself, just the flames. Everything was radiant, the whole sky, a tall flame and smoke. The heat was awful, and he's still not back. One of the sources for Mason's TV series was a Belarusian journalist and oral historian Svetlana Alexievich's book on Chernobyl, comprised of interviews with survivors. It was first published in 1997 in Russian as Chernobylska Malitva. The English version, Voices from Chernobyl, was translated in 2005 by Keith Gessen. Alexievich won the Nobel Prize for it in 2015. One of the main characters is Lyudmila Ignatienka, wife of a deceased fireman who was one of the first to rush to the reactor to try to extinguish the blaze. She was pregnant but insisted on staying with her husband in the hospital even as his body emitted radiation that killed him and their baby in her womb. She didn't have a name yet. She didn't have anything, just a soul. That's what I buried there. I always go there with two bouquets, one for him, and the other I put in the corner for her. I crawl around the grave on my knees, always on my knees. I killed her. I, she saved, my little girl saved me. She took the whole radioactive shock into herself. She was the lightning rod for it. Chernobyl, translator Keith Gessen writes, while an accident, in the sense that no one intentionally set it off, was also the deliberate product of a culture of cronyism, laziness, and a deep-seated indifference toward the general population. Historian Serhii Plohi grew up 300 miles downstream from Chernobyl. It was very much a personal experience for me, and that was one of the reasons that I started to work on the book five, six years ago, despite the fact that the topic interested me all this time since 1986, but it felt to maybe too close to home, too personal. I couldn't do that, but eventually I, I decided that the time had come to do that. Plohi is director of Harvard University's Ukrainian Research Institute. His book, Chernobyl, The History of a Nuclear Catastrophe, is the first comprehensive history of the disaster. 
Serhi Plohi, I was really amazed by your book. Not only the research, the massive research that you had to do, but also your writing is beautiful. It's like a novel. And then your conclusions about what Chernobyl actually meant historically for the end of the Soviet Union. It was really, really masterful. Congratulations. Well, thanks a lot. I'm really pleased because a lot of research indeed went into that book, but I also wanted it to be readable for as broad audience as possible, and I put in there some important messages for our today's world. Well, you know, maybe we'll begin with that, the messages for today's world. Well, I am a historian, and for me, the historical context is extremely important, and that's where a lot of my research went. And the historical context of 1986, those were the last years of the Soviet Union. That was Gorbachev attempts of reforming the political system, the economic system. So all of that is there. But the argument that I'm trying to make is not just the argument about the late Soviet period. It's about the nuclear industry as a whole. So I wanted to make it relevant to our today's concerns about and and partially debates about the climate change. One of the arguments that I'm making is that the new frontier for nuclear today, it's Middle East, it's authoritarian regimes with control over information, including scientific information. And that was one of the reasons why Chernobyl exploded. The complete, complete government control over what was going on, secrecy, and the fact that the Important information about reactor itself was held secret even from the people in the industry. And then there's one line here, and you talk about it in the beginning and then really get into it later in the book, which was the accident marked the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union, which I think is a crucial part of your book. Can you explain that? Indeed, it is a very important argument that I am making in the book. And generally, there is an agreement in the field that Chernobyl and what happened after that contributed in a major way to the rise of the policies of glassness or openness in the Soviet Union. But I am pushing that a little bit further, drawing really a direct line between Chernobyl and the fall of the Soviet Union and try to not just postulate that, but also provide evidence and argumentation. One thing that happened with Chernobyl was that the first ever public mobilization in the Soviet Union started to take place. After Chernobyl, Plohi says, Ukraine's first political party other than the Communist Party was formed. It was called Green World, and out of that grew the Ukrainian movement for independence from the Soviet Union. And the fact that when Ukraine declares independence and then confirms it in a referendum on December 1st, 1991, that was pretty much the end of the Soviet Union. It was dissolved one week later. Journalist Maxim Trubelyubov is Russian, and he's senior advisor here at the Kennan Institute, as well as editor-in-chief of Kennan's The Russia File blog. He's been watching the TV series Chernobyl, and for Russians, he says, it's a complex experience. There is a lot of, I'm sure, there's a lot of nostalgia for the olden days. Uh, It's just watching those pictures. It's like watching old photos from childhood. In my case, it's, it's just this. Those are photos from my childhood. 
even the color of the photos is well done. I mean, the photography is excellent. The one thing that's striking is that it's very respectful for the material and it's very careful. And it's really well done in the sense that I wouldn't think that foreigners of any kind and Westerners would be able to reproduce this reality so faithfully. So there's nostalgia. And it's a faithful picture of how life looked back then. But on the other hand, there is this ethos of the ruling elites, the way they manage what they do and how they do things that is also depicted faithfully. The way they do cover-ups, the way they try to present a situation in a milder tone than it really is, and try to solve problems quickly without thinking. As you are watching it, do you have the feeling like, wow, how things have changed and it's much, much better? Or does that kind of nagging feeling that Soviet thinking is still alive and well to a certain extent bother you? Yes, I do think that it's alive to a certain extent in the sense that the culture of ruling from the position of force, as it were, politically, so that we, as the rulers, we have the entire power. Only we know how to do things. We know how to manage this huge, unruly organism, which is, at the time, the Soviet Empire. Now it's the Russian Federation. So by now, even today, there are certain legacies of that. As I did my research for this podcast, almost all of the reviews of the TV series Chernobyl were glowing. And then I read Masha Gessen's piece in The New Yorker. Masha is Russian and American, an extraordinary writer in both languages. There were some things she thought the series got right, the way it accurately depicted the material culture of the Soviet Union, but then there was what it got wrong. What I think it got terribly wrong was the nature of power relations in the Soviet Union. And I understand that the series is fiction, but I think that because its subject was power, in effect, Mm. I think it actually had an obligation to get it right. And the other thing is that what was so strange about the Soviet Union was the way that power operated in the Soviet Union. Okay, so explain that. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the ways in which they tried to convey that it was a totalitarian society was extremely heavy-handed. Like there's that scene in um, when Legasov and I'm blanking on the Central Committee guy's name. Yeah. When they're on the plane to Chernobyl and the apparatchik says to the scientist, explain to me how a nuclear reactor works. Mm-hmm. And the scientist sort of hems and haws, and Aparachik says, explain it to me or I'll have you shot. <laughs> and a lot of the dialogue in the series I found actually quite cartoonish. But this particular thing wasn't just cartoonish. It implied that Soviet society functioned on threat. And that sort of the presence, the immediate presence of threat and danger was what made people fall in line. What's really interesting about Soviet society to me is that that wasn't the case. And I think that's it's not just interesting. It's a thing that we really have to understand 
in order to understand both Soviet society and contemporary Russia. You know, I think you're making a really important point because as I was reading this, I kept thinking of that title, Hannah Arendt's book, The Banality of Evil. And the fact that in the Soviet Union, or at least from my experience of it, people really didn't have to necessarily <laughs> get put up to a wall and shot to do things. It just kind of went along. You point out resignation, you say, is the defining condition of Soviet life. Just kind of depressing, mundane, yeah, I have to do it. Is that what you're talking about? That's what I'm talking about. And it's resignation, and it's what psychologists call low-level dread. A lot of the time, people were a little bit afraid. But the amazing thing about it is that if you were in a position to ask somebody, well, what would happen? They wouldn't say, well, I'm going to get shot. <laughs> so it's like, don't talk about this in school. Why? What would happen? Just don't. Nothing in particular. <laughs> Just don't. Right? Uh -huh. And that's the thing that's missing. That is such a hard thing to get across, I think, to a non-Soviet or non-Russian audience. And yet, to kind of maybe take a little more simplistic approach, you do have that and how the society functioned, but you do have this incredible bravery and people risking their own lives for a common good or what they perceived was a common good. Where does that fit into the equation? See, first of all, that's obviously what the series shows, right, is people risking their their lives for what they perceive to be the common good. I think people risk their lives in part because they perceive that they had no choice. And that's what you get from reading Alexievich's oral history accounts of, mm -hmm. of Chernobyl. People didn't go and die in the liquidation efforts or soon after because they felt they were saving humanity. Mm -hmm. They died because they had insufficient information and because they had no choice. But also, and this is something that is even more profound, you know, I don't expect a television series to show this, right? But it would be awesome if it could, because they had no reason to live, right? We know this about Soviet society. We know how senselessly and constantly people died and how they continued to die in Russia. And there's some really interesting writing about what's called excess mortality, in Russia and Soviet society, which comes of hopelessness. I mean, it's something that we've actually started talking about in this country in the last couple of years, the, the deaths of despair. Okay, so now that you've depressed us with the, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the insignificance of life and the, and the lack of meaning, what are we supposed to learn from Chernobyl? I mean, if it is a seminal event, how do we put it into our, our understanding of the world? I don't know. I'm not a lessons-to-be-learned kind of thinker, I think. I kind of like to think more of stories. And what I found extraordinary about stories from Chernobyl was this was something that had never happened before. It's actually pretty hard to think about a major human calamity that's never happened before. We've had plagues, we've had wars, we've had famines, we've had natural disasters. This had never happened before. And I think that's part of the reason why I'm so resentful of it being turned into a completely formulaic Hollywood story. Because it is an entirely new kind of story. 
Today, Chernobyl influences the debate over nuclear power, our discussions about why the Soviet Union collapsed, our understanding of how governments can lie to their own citizens. Craig Mazin's television series Chernobyl reminds us once again of that tragedy, of the people who died because of it, and the people who survived and still try to comprehend it. We'll end this podcast with Svetlana Alexeyevich's book and the words of Yevgeny Alexandrovich Brovkin, a university instructor. I've wondered why everyone was silent about Chernobyl, why our writers weren't writing much about it. They write about the war or the camps, but here they're silent. Why? Do you think it's an accident? If we'd beaten Chernobyl, people would talk about it and write about it more. Or if we'd understood Chernobyl, but we don't know how to capture any meaning from it. We're not capable of it. We can't place it in our human experience or our human time frame. So what's better, to remember or to forget? Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.